Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we are uh, continuing a series this week we've been in since Easter. It's called Catch You on the Flip Side. And this series is about death and the afterlife. It's kind of a morbid subject sometimes. In some ways, even as we'll see today, it can be a bit personal. Some of the things that we think about or wrestle with regarding death in the afterlife can be personal. And this topic can be somewhat confusing. There are timelines that we don't fully know about. We've already discussed that in previous weeks about when this will happen and how that will look and what order. We don't always know every single detail. So there are a lot of unknowns, a lot of questions about this topic. And really, one question you might have is, why are we talking about this? Why are we discussing this topic? And here's why. Because what you believe about death will affect your actions in life. That's the whole theme behind this series. What you believe about death will affect your actions in life one way or another. One viewpoint or another will affect how you live this life. And so we are, what we've been doing starting last week is we asked you to submit some questions you had about this uh, subject, and we tackled three last week. If you missed it, you can go back and watch that. And then we're going to answer two today, and I have a third one for today, but it's going to be in two weeks its own question. It's going to take up the whole week. And so I was, you know, like I did on Wednesday, I was going to try to cram way too much And so I thought, no, let's not do that. And so we're doing the same thing. So we're going to extend this series by one extra week to talk about maybe one of the most controversial questions you can ask about death and the afterlife is in two weeks. And so this week we're going to talk about two of them. And so let's jump right into it and see what questions we are going to look at today. The first one is this. And again, I've condensed the question on the screen, but I'll ask the full question as it was submitted So the question was, the Bible tells us we can store up treasures in heaven. How would you define treasures? So we're going to define this idea of treasure in heaven. What does that mean? Let me ask this question. Who actually said this idea? Who said that term, treasures in heaven? Who knows who said that in the Bible? Yes, you want to say it, but you don't. I understand. Jesus is the person that used this phrase. He said this phrase. So what does he mean by that? Well, let's look at the scripture where that's found in Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus's longest recorded sermon in scripture. Some of the most well-known things in the Bible are from this sermon, and this may be one of them. So Matthew 6, starting at verse 19, Jesus says this, don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, there it is, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Skip down to verse 24, the end of this section. He says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. 
So the essence of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6, about treasure in heaven, is something that we already talked about when we talked about heaven a couple of weeks ago. And that is, he is asking us to consider how much value do you place on the here and now versus how much value do you place on the hereafter. And we gave the idea of this rope that never ended representing eternity and a small little bit of tape in the middle. That bit of tape in the middle of that long rope that never ended was all of human existence. And either end of that rope was either eternity past or eternity future. That's how short our existence is when, God, when with God there is no time. Okay? Yet, we spend so much of our time, effort, energy, uh, and attention and affection on that short little, really our life is a little blip on that piece of tape. So Jesus is kind of challenging us here. He's saying stuff here fades, it warps, it wears out. So you buy a brand new car, you drive it off the lot, it automatically is worth less than when you sat in that car. In the first year of owning that new car, it depreciates about 20%. And then the next four years, it depreciates about 15% each year after that. So you buy a brand new car, five years later, maybe it's worth about a third of what it was when you bought it. Stuff fades. Value doesn't last. Appliances break down in our home, don't they? Sometimes all at once, <laughs> okay? <laughs> they just do. Our clothes wear out. It just, fabric fades. It, you know, you wash it and dry it so many times and you wear it so often, it just wears out. Jesus saying, yes, you know this to be true. The things that we hold on to so dearly are really so fragile. We think about it. In America, each year, there are about 1.5 million home burglaries. Everything that people hold on to and hold so dearly can be taken like that. There's about one point, or I'm sorry, uh, last year, in 2020, there were 1.4 million cases of identity theft in the United States. So that, that can ruin everything about someone's life. It messes everything up. So the things that we t take so much time and energy and attention and affection on in this life doesn't last. And we know this, but usually we know it kind of in the back of our mind. Like we, I know, but I, I, you know, I'm going to, and there, things aren't wrong, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Possessions are not sinful in and of themselves, okay? This is a piece of wood. It cannot sin. It is not sinful. It can be used for a sinful purpose, but it is not sinful. It's the same with every other object in the world, but Jesus is saying, hey, maybe it's better if we focus more on the spiritual things rather than the physical things. Now, we do deal in the physical, right? You have a job. You have to earn an income. You have responsibilities. You have obligations. You have things that we enjoy. We talked about all, a couple weeks ago. We enjoy this life. God made it to be enjoyed. But, again, the focus is to live for the spiritual and not live so much for the here and now. So things are not bad, but if we place too much importance on those things, they can be bad. They can be barriers to what is really important, what really lasts. So the, the challenge is, are we focusing on treasures here that will decay and rust and not mean anything in the grand scheme of eternity, or are we focused on treasures in heaven? Where is most of our focus? And we see this tension again in another encounter that Jesus has in Matthew 19. It's a famous story where this man who's not named, but he's got a title, he's called the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus, and he has a very good question. He says, teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? We ask that question a lot in life. What do I have to do to get in at the end? 
how much do I have to do? How much do I have to give? What are the requirements? What are the boxes I have to check to make to hit the up button on the elevator of eternity and not the down button? It's a great question. And so Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments. You know, hey, this will take you a lifetime to figure out. Go ahead and do those things. And the guy says, hey, I've done those things. So I'm in, right? I'm good. That's awesome. And so here's what it said. Let's read some of this. Matthew 19, verse 20. The man says, I've obeyed all these commands. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. There's that phrase again. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard, hear this, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Now, I want you to understand that you are represented in this story. You and I are the rich young ruler. Because think about our standard of living now based on their standard of living when this account was written. No matter where you think you fall on the spectrum now, where you fall on the spectrum now is many times more than the average person 2,000 years ago. There is no arguing that point. Even no matter where you fall nearly on the spectrum now, it's more than 90 plus percent of the rest of the world. Okay? So we are like this rich young ruler. Our standard of living is so high compared to even maybe this guy. Maybe even some of us in this room are richer than the rich young ruler. So here's the problem. It's not that we have stuff or that we are rich or whatever. That's not the point. The point is that we are immersed in this Western culture where we pretty much have it pretty easy. It makes our awareness of our need for and dependence upon God that much harder to, to be aware of. Okay. So, the, so Jesus in the... Uh, in the the Lord's Prayer. He says, give us this day our daily bread. We don't pray that way in America most of the time. Occasionally, we have moments where we're stressed out about bills, or we maybe are laid off from our job, or we have all these things piling up, or all of our appliances do break down. But most of the time, we just don't want to get into our savings account. It's like, I have a lot of money in the bank. I just don't want to get into it. So we're the rich young ruler, okay? We just are. And so we don't, we don't think about it in those terms, but that is our reality. And here's the other thing. It's the longer, this is true in most cases, maybe not all, but in most, the longer that we live on this earth with our possessions, we get more comfortable with those possessions. That reminds me of, I mentioned this book on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. It's called The Screwtape Letters, and it's written by C.S. Lewis. If you're not familiar with this book, let me give you a quick synopsis of what it is. Basically, it's a series of letters written by one older, experienced demon. It's a work of fiction, okay? To his younger, inexperienced, first-time-out-on-the-job demon, his nephew, okay? So Screwtape uh, is writing. He's the old, experienced demon writing to his nephew, Wormwood. And he's basically giving him tips on how to try to steal this man's soul. So he's been assigned to this one human who's just become a Christian, and his job is to say, nope, you're coming back to our side. 
That's what the whole premise of this book is about, okay? So in one of the chapters, one of the letters that Screwtape writes, he, said, he gives him this advice. It's written during World War II. And so there's the portion where it talks about bombs falling where this human lives. He knows there's going to be an attack. And so he says what you would think would, he would say the opposite. But he tells his nephew, I'm going to move slowly, he tells his nephew to try to keep the human safe and alive. You would think, well, no, the demon should push him into harm's way, let him explode into bits. No, because the human at this point is a Christian. So he knows if he dies, we've lost this one. He's, a, he's gone. We, we know we take the L on this one. So he tells him, hey, keep him scared, keep him hidden, keep him safe so he will live. Because if he li- the longer he lives, the more time we have to distract him, to defeat him, and to ultimately take his soul over to our side. So this is true. The longer that we live sometimes, the more comfortable we get in our living. And you would think, well, no, because I'm closer to death, so I, sometimes that's true. And maybe at some points it's even stronger that as we get older we think more about uh, eternity because we know it's maybe closer, right? But as humans, we just like living, and we like our stuff, and we like our treasures here, sometimes a little bit too much. So again, the challenge here is we talk about, we'll get to the treasures in heaven specifically in just a second, I'm going to get there, is to not focus so much on the treasures of earth, okay? And what Jesus is talking about, I think specifically, in both Matthew 6 and Matthew 19, is our investment in the kingdom, And by that, yes, I do mean a literal financial investment, okay? So we are are going to talk about this for just a second. Jesus is challenging us with our treasure. Now, he asks the guy in Matthew 19, he says, sell everything you own and then follow me. So let me just say this off the bat. When we talk about tithing at church, we got a pretty good deal compared to the rich young ruler, okay? He's, Jesus says, give everything and follow me. And all that really scripture asks for followers of Jesus, give me 10% of that, right? So we think, man, God's greedy. No, 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 flip it. God lets us keep 90% because he owns everything. He's Lord of all. So that's, that's the focus here. We get focused on what God wants and not what God allows us to have as we invest in spiritual heavenly treasure, okay? And I think with this man, this rich young ruler, I think it's possible that Jesus is being extreme on purpose. He's trying to grab the guy's attention to see what reaction he would get. And obviously the guy just, he's like, I'm out. He bails immediately. He doesn't even try to negotiate. Well, what about 25%? What about 50%? He just like, I'm out. He doesn't ask any questions. He's done. But I think Jesus is not asking for that. But here's what he's saying. Jesus would say to us today, it's good to know the gospel. That's good. It's good to believe the gospel. That's great. But if we've been affected by the gospel, we should then invest in the gospel. Invest in the work of the ministry that's, that's done. Placing our temporary treasure in a better place, Jesus would say. Investing more of that in a place that will not fade, that has lasting merit and value, that changes people's lives now, yes, but also alters their eternal destiny. That's what Jesus is talking about. This thing we don't want to talk about, the spiritual thing called money and stuff that is not bad but needs to have its proper place. So what I'm not saying is that giving to a church saves you, okay? This is not churchopoly, 
okay, where you land on the 10% tax thing and you win the game. That's not what this is. But it is, as we have been impacted and affected by the gospel, we should then be propelled to invest in the gospel so it can help to change others. That's how this whole thing works. It's not so that we can, you know, build huge buildings and have all these things. It's no, so we can do more with more people, affect more change. That's what builds treasure in heaven. Let me just say this quickly, though. Let's read one more scripture. It's not just about what we give, but it, all, it is also about what we do every single day. Let's read this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll actually read this again on Wednesday night and talk about it as well, but let's look at it this morning here, too, talking about treasure in heaven. Paul writes this, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder, Now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So treasure in heaven, yes, is investing in the spiritual things, investing in the ministry, investing in the kingdom of God. Yes, but it's also how we use our lives every day, how we use our words every day, how we use our influence every day for the sake of the gospel. That also is about treasure in heaven. So as a parent or grandparent, how you model your faith matters to your kids and your grandkids. How you attempt to live how God would have us to live matters. It's building up treasure in heaven, right? That's what that is about. As a neighbor, how we model Jesus to our neighbors and our friends and all those people in in our everyday life matters. As we use our words and actions and influence to impact them for the sake of the gospel, that builds up this spiritual treasure, this treasure in heaven. Even as we talked about volunteering or serving at the church, Doing that is storing up treasure in heaven. So here's a quick plug to get you really motivated to serve and give at church, right? So as you're greeting at the front door, making someone feel welcome puts some sort of deposit in your treasure in heaven. Because, you know, for some people, church can be a really tense place, especially if they're new to church or new to our church or whatever. And so a friendly face, a smile, a welcome can, can make them at ease and make them more receptive to what God wants to say and do in their life on that particular day. That matters. And being involved in worship helps people to engage in the Holy Spirit. That is a spiritual deposit in your heavenly treasure. Serving in kids is about spiritual formation of our children. There's a huge deposit for that. So as we serve, even in, in, our, in outreach, in our community, being salt and light, as Jesus says, that's putting deposit in our spiritual treasure. These are the things, Paul says, that matter, that won't burn up. It's storing treasure in heaven. So I don't know about you, but I want a good portion of what I say and do to be fireproof, like what Paul says. I want my life to really mean something. I want it to matter. I want to be careful about, you know, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed and not just in this sort of, yeah, I'm a Christian and I have faith. But what does that look like? What does that sound 
like in our lives. That is storing up treasure in heaven. So let's get to the second question, which is maybe a bit more personal. So here's the second question we're going to look at this morning. If I'm in heaven, will I be aware of people who are not there? And if so, will I miss them? If I'm in heaven, will I be aware of people who are not there? And if so, will I miss them? So let's backtrack and set a bit of a foundation here and start this question by comparing this current existence, which is awful, to the existence that we will experience in heaven one day. Let's just set the stage here really quick. Romans 8.18 through 22, Paul gives us this idea of what that looks like, that comparison. Romans 8.18, Paul writes, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Let's stop there for just one second. So, I'm going to be Captain Obvious for just one second and say that existence in this life is, at best, imperfect. Right? Like the most obvious thing you've ever heard I just said. So, there are, we, we experience pain and sorrow and discomfort and disappointment and tragedy. We, we experience all of those things in this life. And some of you have experienced that more than others. Some of you have suffered greatly in this life. Maybe it's sickness or disease that you've wrestled with for months or years. Maybe it's abuse or abandonment that you have dealt with at some point in your life. Maybe it's tragedy or actual loss that you have suffered in your life. That's the best we can do here and now. Sorry, that's it. That's the ceiling. That's all there is to it. So that's what makes this future existence in heaven so amazing to consider. And we know that because we know that nothing about our present reality is anywhere near perfect. So even Paul says here, even creation itself knows there's more than this. It says there it's groaning. It's awaiting a future day when everything will be as it should have been in the beginning as it was for about five seconds until we messed it up. So it even says against its will, creation is groaning. It was subjected to God's judgment. So we talk about this idea very quickly of like global warming. Can I just tell you the problem with global warming is not carbon emissions, but sin? So we want, let's, go to, let's go to the UN and say, let's stop sinning, and maybe we can stop global warming. If you want the cure, I've got it. Maybe let's just not sin anymore, and we won't have to worry about that. That's probably not going to happen, but that, that is the true crux of the matter. We know this is not all there is. Even creation knows that, okay? So then verse 23 of Romans 8 gives us this glimpse of the future, Paul says, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit with us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, I wasn't even moving, including the new bodies he has promised us. So our ultimate hope as followers of Jesus is to one day be in a perfect place. That will be nothing (laughs) like how we live now. No more sin or suffering, Paul says. 
And so it's not, to get to the heart of this question, it's not just that we want to go there, but we want to see our friends and loved ones there as well. But sadly, I think many of us know of too many people who we aren't sure if we're going to see them there. People who have already died, we're like, oh, I don't, man, I don't, I'm not sure. Like, we, we want to believe and we hope that they will, but we just don't. Some people you just know. Like my grandpa, I know, he's a shoe-in, okay? Uh, but there are, you know, other people that we, that we maybe know, we're like, ooh, I don't know. Or we know people who are still alive now, and we're like, I don't know if they died now where they would go. We all know people like that. So, and so here and now, that proposition might worry us might even cause fear in our hearts. But again, the question is, will it be the same way in heaven? I'm there, I'm looking for Uncle Joe, and I haven't seen him. I've been here for a while, I've looked for him, and I'm getting kind of concerned that maybe he's not here. Will we do that? And if we do, will it cause pain or sadness in our hearts? Will it kind of dampen our heavenly experience? So let's look at a scripture that we looked at a few weeks ago, we're going to revisit it for this purpose. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, John, in his vision of heaven, tells us what it's going to be like. He describes, really, the, I think, some of the best part here of what we can experience in heaven. So, Revelation 21, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Here's the the amazing part. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Let's walk through this just for a few minutes to get to the the key part of this idea. If I'm looking around for people and I don't see them, what, what is that going to be like? Or is that even going to be a thing that happens? So first, we see here four times in these verses that the word new is mentioned. There's some confusion, maybe, or even that I've had to wrestle with in the last few years about this idea. New heaven, new earth, new creation, everything's new. So we do read in other parts of Revelation that the earth is kind of on fire at some point. Everything's burned, crispy critter, that kind of thing, you know. So the question is, is, this, is it like a brand new one? Or is it, I think really the idea here of what we see is it's almost like it's burned so that it can be recreated into that perfect heaven and earth, okay? So I, I do believe that, it's, and maybe that's going to cause more questions than answers, so I apologize, but I do believe there are other parts of the New Testament and even some of the Old to show us that the earth that we read about here in Revelation may look similar to this one. 
that there may even be like mountain ranges that we might recognize in some way. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like he's going to destroy this plant. Again, we go back to Romans 8. Why would the earth be groaning and looking forward to something if that something is destruction? And he compares this new heaven and new earth, Paul does in Romans 8, to our heavenly bodies, which we've already talked about, are going to have some recognizability to this one. It's going to be glorified and perfected, but as we look at the model of Jesus, he was recognized in his resurrected body as him. So if we compare the new earth to the new body that we're going to have, there will be some recognizability, I believe, to what we know now. Okay, But here's the one thing we do know for sure, because it says it right here. Heaven is a place with no suffering, no death, no pain, no sorrow, no crying. So the argument then for this question is, if I don't know who's in heaven, won't that make me cry? Won't that cause sorrow? Won't that cause pain? Because I'm aware of them not being here, that would cause those things. Now some would use, we talked about this a few weeks ago, this a parable Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and goes to hell. This beggar named Lazarus dies and goes to heaven. Well, in that story, the rich man talks about his brothers, right? He says, hey, send Lazarus to go talk to my brothers and save them because they don't want to be here. So some people would use that argument to say, well, no, we'll know people in that way. Well, the rich man's not in heaven. Right? The premise of the question is, if I'm in heaven, will I know people who are not there? The rich man is in hell. So I do believe... I quite strongly, that that's part of hell, is that I do know that I'm there, and I do know that people I love and care about who tried to warn me are not there, and that causes even more pain. I believe that is part of what hell is going to be like. It's sort of this, you replay those moments over and over and over in your brain about, man, I should have responded to Jesus. Oh, I should have, I had a chance here. That's part of the agony, I believe, of hell. So that doesn't really hold water here. But so it, here's the thing. I, the Bible doesn't say for sure about this. So it's possible that we will not know who's there or not. Or we will not know who's not there. Okay, it's po- that's possible. I'd say probable. Let me just give the counter, the other side of that coin, though, just, just so we answer both parts of this question and try to leave us without asking, well, what about this? I try to do that as I'm writing. Well, what could you ask? Well, what about? So here's where we go. There may be a possibility that we do know who's not in heaven when we are there, okay? It's possible that we would know. However, here's what I believe that answers that question. In our glorified bodies, in the sinless perfection of heaven, even that knowledge in that setting will not actually cause sadness. Here's why I say that, for two reasons. First, and this may be hard to swallow, but just bear with me for a second, okay? It's possible we would know who's not there, yet it will not cause sadness or grief or sorrow. First, because ultimately, in that final destination, we know that God's ultimate perfect justice has been done. And so in that glorified state, in that perfect place, even if we have that knowledge, we will know God did. He said it is finished right here, right? It's finished So we're like, yeah, God did what he did. I mean, and it's not even that we're going to be like, I'm not okay with that. I think we're going to be just like, God 
God's justice was done. Praise God. He had his way. He had his will. What's done is done. God is perfect in all his ways and all his judgments. He is just. We'll come back to this again in two weeks because that it, it sort of goes with the question we'll talk about then. So here's the other part of this question too. Even if we know people who are not there, it wouldn't cause sadness because our ultimate focus is not about who's not there, but that we are there. That's the focus. That's the beauty of heaven. I'm here. God is here in his full glory, without any veil, without any distance. That's all that's going to really be on our hearts and minds and spirits in that place. This is perfect. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, walls of jasper. God's presence is here. That's a pretty cool thing. So we're not really going to have the room in our resurrected heavenly brain to think about who's not there. Our focus will entirely be upon the glory of God. So that kind of gives you both, and you can disagree with any of those, and I'd love to talk with you about that if you have a third option that I haven't thought about. Um, I'd love to talk because that's a question that's a, it's a tough one to think, I would know that my mom's not there and I'm not going to be sad about that, or I'm not going to have a memory of this loved one because they're not there. They're just going to kind of never have existed. Those are hard, that's hard things to consider, but somebody asked the question, so I, you know, I had to kind of deal with it. So thanks for that one. No, it's a good good question. One more scripture. This kind of gets to the point of the difficulty of this answer, the difficulty of this question. We may not be satisfied with either one of them. We may be looking for a third or fourth option here, but ultimately, here's where we have to land. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Paul writes this, Now, I even have it color-coded to help us focus. Now, we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. So here's the thing. Everything that we can see, sense, experience, and understand about God now, we see, sense, experience, and understand it imperfectly, incompletely, only partially. So even God's goodness, we know how good God's goodness is, but we only know like a little taste of God's goodness here and now. Even when it comes to God's grace, we know how amazing God's grace is, right? We sing about amazing grace. Like we only know that to a certain degree. Even God's justice, as we are talking about this question, we know God is just and perfect in his judgment, and he's always fair and impartial. We know this, but only to a certain degree can we understand these things in our finite human brains and spirits. But, Paul says, in heaven, all of this we will know perfectly, fully, and completely. So whatever questions we have somehow will be answered. Either we'll just have the knowledge of the answers and be fine with it, or we won't even remember the question. You ever done that before? What was I going to ask again? Heaven might be a lot of that, you know. Where did I put my keys to my mansion in heaven? I got to find, maybe it's a lot of that. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Our, our final focus and attention in heaven will be the goodness, the glory, and the perfection of God. That's the goal. That's the hope. That's the whole reason, the whole point of why heaven is so amazing. So let's get back to the the point of this series. What you believe about death will determine and affect your actions in life. So what does that mean for these two questions? 
So first, when we, talk, when we talk about treasures in heaven, how you view that will affect how you live. So let's have a gospel urgency to invest in the work of the kingdom. Let's have gospel urgency to fund the work of the ministry. Okay, let's, let's think about the things that are to come more than the things that are now. When it comes to who will or who won't be in heaven, let's have gospel urgency to live out our faith day in and day out so that as many people as possible can be there with us. I'll have a shorter list of people I maybe am looking for, disappointed that I won't find. And again, it's not, the results are not up to us. So don't let me you know, give that false impression. God does the saving. We just do the living out of our faith. And he does the rest of the work. He does the convicting and the saving. He is the judge. He is the Savior, not us. But again, as we invest in heavenly treasure, as we live out our lives, we will see hopefully heaven filled to the brim with those that we love and care for so much. And that is the goal. Amen.